Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, he's talking about what he just said up above what we looked at last week. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Not a, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming faith, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Amen. This is God's Word. Every word of God proves true, and He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father in Heaven, Son and Holy Spirit, good triune God, we ask that You would open our eyes now, that You would give us hearts and ears and eyes to be able to sense and hear and to see what it is that you would have uh, us to know tonight. Would you uh, make my words clear, I pray? Would you, um, Lord, move in such a way that Jesus would be made much of. And Lord, we ask all of this in your name. Amen. Um, You know that we've been looking at the book of Galatians all semester. And one of the primary things that we keep coming back to is this, that you and me have a problem. And here's what it is. We lack something that the book of Galatians hammers home, this thing called righteousness. Now that's not a word that gets talked a lot about in Christian circles, because we often think about the point of the Christian life is to sort of become forgiven, and that's part of it. But there's also this entity called righteousness that we actually need that we don't have. And I want to suggest to you tonight that unless you understand that you have a righteousness dearth, that you do not have righteousness apart from Christ, what we're going to look at tonight makes zero sense to you. It will make no sense. So you need to see that you lack righteousness, that Christ has it all, and that He is the one in whom we access it for. You need to be able to see that tonight. 
Now, in the book of Galatians, you have to remember as well, there were other teachers who had another message that was diametrically opposed to what Paul was saying. Paul was saying that real life, real salvation, real freedom can only be found by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These false teachers that had slipped in, that we've called the Judaizers, are saying Jesus is good, but He's not enough. He's needed, but He's not a necessity in the sense that it's Him and Him alone. In other words, Jesus was essential, but He wasn't sufficient. And Paul, throughout the course of the letter, will have none of it. Now, they are saying that you must trust not only in Jesus, but you have to keep all that the law commands. And Paul, frankly, is saying, no way. They were saying that acceptance was had by faith plus the faithful obedience to the law. Now, Paul views this Jesus plus law mentality as one thing and one thing only, slavery. That when you add anything to Jesus, you are caging yourself up. Why? Because the law itself, law by its nature, encages us. The adherence to a set of rules is never meant to be our liberation. The law cannot bring real freedom as we will see tonight. It cannot save. Now, almost 20 years ago, I don't know how many of y'all saw this movie, The Shawshank Redemption hit the big screen. It is a money movie if you've never seen it. Please, you can leave now and go watch it if you need to. That's how good it is. But it's a story that revolves around prisoners in Shawshank Prison a place where the worst of criminals were kept. There is a part in the movie where a former prisoner, Brooks, has been released and is now on the real world outside. And you know what? He doesn't know how to cope with it. And he takes his own life. And some of his friends back in the prison begin to ponder why this was the case. And Red, an inmate played by Morgan Freeman, comments to his buddies, on why this was so. He says this, listen. He was institutionalized. At first, you hate these walls. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get to where you depend on them. That's institutionalized. They send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. The part that counts anyways. Now, I think this is a great depiction of the human heart with respect to the law. We've grown so used to a way of doing life that we actually depend on it. We don't know how to do life apart from the cage of performance-based salvation. Somehow, we've come to think that life in prison is as good as it gets. We've reasoned, life in a cage is home. That's where I want to be. And Paul today is going to talk, therefore, about the impotence of what the law can do. My main points are this. How is it, he's going to say how powerless it is as a means to actually saving. And so, the three main points that I have for you tonight, they're probably listed in the bulletin. First of all, we're going to see what the law can't do. That is, that it can't save, 
It can't change a promise. And it can't bring real unity. So what do I mean there that it can't save? Well, take a look at verse 21 and 22 in your text. Paul says this. He says, is the law then, uh, sorry, is um, the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would indeed be by the law. First of all, we need to see this. What in the heck is Paul talking about when he says the word law? Because it seems to me, if you don't know what that is, you're not going to understand this text. Here's what he means the law when Paul speaks of it, is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Taken collectively, that's what he means by the law. It's also known as Torah or the Pentateuch. Now, why is this so important that we know that? Well, contained in those first five books were all the rules and and, um, legislation to live as God's people. It's where you get stuff like this. That you shall not steal. It's where you get stuff like this. That if your neighbor's ox falls into a ditch, you need to help him get it out. It's where you get things like this. That if you're a leper, you're unclean to worship God and you need to find a way to fix that. It's got a lot more in there too, but that's just some highlights. And Paul is saying that if you try to do life and find acceptance with God on that ground, you cannot have it. And here is why. Paul is going to say that the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Paul is saying that that doesn't function. The idea that a law would function as something that gives liberty cannot be had. The law itself only shows you how guilty you are. It acts as a mirror and it exposes you to your lack of what is needed, that righteousness before God. So think about it like this. Let's say you're driving out in Montana. Never been to, I can't say I've ever driven in Montana. Some of you may have done that. And you've just got an open road, big sky country before you. You're driving in your nice car or whatever and you've got the pedal to the metal. And you look down and you're driving 90 miles an hour and you go, oh wait, I must be speeding. Well, you're only speeding if what? If there's a sign that says something less than 90 miles an hour. But the moment you see that 75 or 80, what happens? You're guilty. Do you see that? This is what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that the law was given to show you how you don't measure up. It was given to show you how you are actually in need of a Savior. How else would you know that you're guilty if there was not a law to show you that you were guilty? That is what Paul is saying. Turn, if you have your Bibles, to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. If not, just listen. The same Paul says this, Romans 3, 20. He says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Listen. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It is the law's job to show you sin. And that is it. That is what he is getting at in this sense. Now, I'm going to take a footnote. 
The law serves a different function too that we'll look at when we get into chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians. So I'm not worried about that right now. Right now, the law is a mirror. It's showing you how busted you are. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that I have picked up my new Garden and Gun magazine that came in the mail a couple nights ago. And I'm reading it. And it's, if you don't know what Garden and Gun is, it's, I don't know what it is. It might be like a guy's Southern Living or something. Who knows? Anyways, um, I'm reading it. And let's say Laura, I'm reading it in bed. Laura, my wife, um, turns to me and says, hey, how's the Garden and Gun? And I just get pissed and rip it up, throw it in the air. I said, it sucks. And she's like, Why? It's like, it didn't tell me how to fix my refrigerator. It shredded it to pieces. Why did you do that, Ryan? It doesn't tell me how to raise my kids. Now, why is that absolutely absurd? Does anybody want to take a stab? Because Gardening Gun is not written to teach me how to fix my refrigerator or how to raise my kids. That's not the intent of what the magazine is for. And I want to say this. The intent of the law, its intent was never, ever, ever (coughs) to save you. Ever. It was written to expose to you your sin. Where's the, how does this matter to us? Here's why this matters. I want you to begin to see a couple of things about why the law is so necessary. First of all, it is needed to show you the bad news first. Y'all, part of what it means to be a Christian is to be honest about your sin. I heard it put like this, that this, you know, the stars sort of shine the, most, the brightest when, this, when this night is the blackest. And you've got to be able to see how black you really are in that sense. How the law would say you're polluted. And unless you can get honest about what the Bible says about you, the Gospel will mean nothing to you. If you think I'm lying, think about it like this. If I, if Tylenol will cure your headache. Here, think about it like this. Imagine if you have cancer. And I'm a doctor, and I roll up in there, and I say, I've got just what you need. I pull out my acetaminophen, and I give you a couple of Tylenol, and I say, there you go. You're going to laugh at me. Because you know that my problem is bigger than what Tylenol has to offer. It won't fix me. You see, the depth of your problem will only make the... The only way you will ever know the value of the remedy is how deep you understand your problem. That's one thing that you have to see about the law. Secondly, I want you to see this. That if you're not a Christian here tonight, and that you're exploring what Christianity is about, I bet that you think what it means to be a Christian is to be a good, moral person. I want this text to show you that nothing could be further from the truth. Paul is saying in this this right here that no amount of rule keeping can get you good graces with God. It can't be had. And so... What I want you to understand is that Christianity is not about a set of rules to keep such that God would accept you. Rather, it is about a status that is given. I know that might sound foreign. I'm just trying to give you new concepts to begin to think about. Look, we Christians have been institutionalized like Shawshank. 
We desperately want to go back in the cage and live by law. I mean, don't you? Don't you, don't you just want somebody to give you a list of things to do? Don't you deep down just want Jesus to go like this? Here, keep them and you're good. That would be so much easier, right? That's what our hearts want. But Paul says, the law can't save you. Why can't the law save you? Let's take a look at our second point. Because it can't change a promise. Now, this is where a little bit of legal language comes in. And I need for you to pay attention because a little bit of Bible history is needed. Back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, God came to the patriarch Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you will bless the nations. And God enters into covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, Abraham. And when he does that, he does it on the grounds not that Abraham had done something well, right, and perfect. Rather, Abraham trusted God and it was credit to him as righteousness. The thing that Abraham needed came to him because he trusted God to be his all, his Savior, so to speak. Now, why is that so very important? Because the law did not yet exist when Abraham was around. It was 430 years later that the law was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 20 on Mount Sinai. So, what is Paul trying to say? Paul is trying to say that that which was established with Abraham was by promise. And a promise cannot be changed by by the law. Okay, I know it's getting a little boring, but let me give you an example. Suppose my dad has a billion dollars, which he doesn't. I wish that he did. And suppose that I was listed as the heir in his will to that billion dollars. When he dies, I get that money. Why? Because the will says so. Because he drafted it. And, by, and it is good in court as a document that will be by its authority, I will get that money. But imagine he goes mad and he changes everything in his will. Or imagine he starts hating me too and he writes me out of it. That would not be a good thing because I would get no money. My dad has changed, right? And I wouldn't receive the inheritance. Or think about it like this. Imagine the bank who serves as sort of the one who oversees that will, or the attorney that oversees it, begins to call me and he says, Ryan, hey, listen, I know what we talked about, but there's some conditions that you have to meet before you can get that money. Well, then everything changes too. The form of the construct begins to change. Why do I mention this to you? Paul wants you to see that neither God changes nor the form of the contract, that covenant, changes either. And because of that, the law itself has no power over us. You might go, so what, dude? Like, what is the big deal? Why are you telling me all these boring details? Here is why I'm telling them to you. Because you need to see that when the law came, it did not eradicate the grounds on which salvation came. It's always been by faith. 
It's always been by faith in a Messiah. And that's what Paul wants you to see here in this text. So, hear me out on this. If I were to ask the question, how were Old Testament people saved? It's not by keeping the law. It's by faith. It's by faith. It's by faith. So, very, very important point there. Now, let's, let me see if I can think of one more thing to kind of drive this home before we move on to our last point. When I say that it can't change a promise, I, I think what I want to begin to say to you is this. If it cannot be changed, this is an incredible comfort to those of us who fail all the time. Why? Because most of the time when you fail spiritually, you will begin to think, okay, I've blown it. Give me the list. Let me go out there and try to fix it. Let me go out there and try to make things right with me and God. And guess what? You don't have to do that. Because everything's okay with you and God. Is that good news? The grounds that I can say that are right here in this text. Listen, when you blow it, if you're a Christian, with, if you're a Christian, when you blow it with God, do you realize He hasn't changed His vanity? He doesn't change the way He views you. He doesn't love you any less. It's by grace. It is by grace and not by works that you've been saved. If that's really the case, there is nothing that you can do to get God to love you more than He loves you right now. And it is equally true that if you are loved by God, there is nothing that you can do to make Him love you any less than He does right now. And that, my friends, ought to liberate you. That ought to liberate you. Let's take a look at the last little bit about how it cannot provide or bring real unity. You'll notice that Paul says in the last section of our text, in verse 326, that for, Christ, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is saying that once we have all trusted in Christ, we now share a lowest common denominator, that we are all now sons. Now look, ladies, this isn't meant to diminish your gender. That's not the point at all. It's just a way of saying that we are all now one in Christ Jesus. Now what does he mean by this? He is saying this, that now all of the things that used to define you are rubbish in importance. You are now, the thing that most identifies you is that you are now considered a son. Ladies, you are considered a son. Yes, hang with it. Fellas, you're still the bride of Christ. Okay, So, you got both ends that you got to deal with there. The point is, is this. I want you to begin to see something that we'll pick up on next week in full. That God looks at you and cherishes you as a son. That that is the new status that you have. I mentioned it earlier. Christianity is primarily about a status. And that status now is that you are a son. That you have been welcomed into the very heart of God as His child. Now, the reason that this is incredibly important for why this would matter on this campus is because all of the things that define you on this campus, if you're a Christian, do not matter. Here, 
If you think I'm lying, check this out. Think of all the labels that you use to apply yourself and that you get value from on this campus. Where is Christian in that ranking? Son of God, daughter of God is at the top. Think about it like this. I'm an upperclassman. I'm a freshman. Do you realize that the two of y'all are more in common if you're in Jesus than those distinctions? Well, I'm not Greek, but I am, and I'm Greek. It don't matter. It doesn't matter. That identity doesn't matter compared to the fact that you are a son or a daughter in Jesus. Think about it this way. I worship in this sort of way. No, no, I worship in that sort of way. It doesn't matter. It's not the primary marker. Being a son is. Now, why is this so important? Listen. Because whatever that marker is that you use to sort of differentiate yourself with another person, you are saying that you need other person to get over that hurdle if you want to come to Jesus. And it just isn't true. And so God will go to work in your life and He will begin to mash and to melt that away. Let me get practical. Let's say that you're somebody who disdains a certain people on this campus. If you are a Christian, you have to let the Gospel go to work there and unravel that. Because, guess what? You were yourself once an enemy of God. And He was gracious to you. And He has now called you a son or a daughter. And now the Gospel frees us to be able to look at people who we actually hate and we are actually able to love them now because Christ has so loved us. The song that we just sang, the idea is beautiful. He says... The songwriter says that He has hushed the law's loud thunder. What in the world does that mean? Do you know what the law thunders? The law thunders this. You're guilty. You're dead. You've not measured up. And Jesus Himself silences that. How? How does Jesus silence it? The same song tells us. On the cross, the very justice of God could not have been heavier or more inflicted than on the person and work of Jesus. And yet, at the very same moment, the love of God could not have been greater than it was as Jesus was dying for His enemies. Y'all listen. The song says, that when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and it asks no more. The gavel has been laid down. Court is out of session. The judge requires no more because all that justice demands, it has been paid by Jesus. That's what I want you to see. The law can't bring it. Only Jesus can. And that's why Paul is so adamant to sort of blast away the way that we think about a self-salvation project through performance and observance. 
This is good news for our souls. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, will you begin to show us these things that are murky, these things, these things that seem insignificant, carry great weight for us. They are meat and potatoes. They are the foundation, O oh Lord, of our faith. And so we pray that You would show them to us in ways that are life-giving and that make sense. I know I can be confusing. And so I pray that You would give grace to these men and women as they listen to me and that You would make clear by Your Spirit what Your Word says. Lord, would You do this, that Jesus would be made beautiful. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.